Welcome to our 19th lesson in the book of Jude. I've called it Building Faith Builds Character. And we're going to be looking at one verse, Jude chapter 20. Let's look at two slides from our last lesson there to, once again, put us into a proper frame of reference, to focus our mind on the scripture because we're building on what we have already taught. Now, we have to remember that the lost, knowing, is forced into an Antichrist context. Romans 1, 18 through 28. They are asabea, anti-God. And this results in de degradation and violence, deepening one's enslavement to sin, Satan, the world, the flesh, your animalistic instincts. But God's knowing fits a pro-Christ context. It's usabea, and we're going to be concentrating on that word throughout today's lesson. It's reasonable. It's peaceful, it's pure, it seeks to bring peace to those who have no peace. Thus the goal of false teachers is to make the world's knowing appear reasonable. Now it's incoherent, it's illogical, and it is not reasonable. But mature Christians led by Christ rest in what the False teachers and the wise of the world call God's foolishness. We choose life over death, but we pay a cost for this. Remember, they killed Christ. And to think that they will not attack us is just blind foolishness. And false teachers and sinners, who is their prey? Who are they stalking? They're stalking the Christian. They don't have to convince the lost. The lost are already asabea. They have to convince the immature Christians. And when I say the immature, I mean those who are new in Christ and those who want to remain ignorant in Christ. And it's mainly the latter that they target, because these are the prideful ones. And you have to remember, we are two souls, daisubtkas, because we have the new nature, but the old flesh. And I would invite you to go back and listen to the previous lesson in which I went into more detail on how that works. But just know that we are not unified because we have the new nature, but we still remain in the old flesh. Whereas the lost, they are sukas or unisukas. <clears throat> now I said one sold in the last lesson just to contrast the difference between the two. But in actual fact, the lost person is unified. They have their natural flesh. 
which is unified with their old man, their lost nature. And the two are in agreement and they act together as one. This is an Antichrist context. So remember, wisdom is putting facts into a godly context, into usabeya context. That is wisdom. Foolishness, being simple, no matter how learned you think you are, is putting the facts into an asabeya or ungodly context, an antichrist context. That's why in John chapter 3, Christ questions Nicodemus. says, you are a teacher of Israel? Now, he meant a teacher of the law, of the religion, of Judaism. Because Nicodemus had been putting the facts of the written word of God into an Asabea context, into an Antichrist context, into a Talmudic Midrash Mishnah context, which is all about works, all about man. It is not about following the scriptures. It is not about God sending himself to die for your sin. That's why Christ questioned him. You don't understand anything I'm saying? And you call yourself a teacher of Israel? If you go back and you read John chapter 3, Christ is confronting him with almost every statement. In your face, confrontation. Not angry. Not belligerent. Not degrading. But this man has been looked up to. And Christ says, I don't know why. Because... You're basically really ignorant in the Bible. Now, the immature tries to control self and fails. And we're going to hit that topic again and again. Because you can never control the flesh. The Romans 7 into chapter 8 tells us this. Your two natures, the nature of the flesh... And the nature of your new man, your new nature, are at war. There is no surrender. There is no compromise. There is no giving up. So you cannot control your flesh. If you could control your flesh, Adam would never have sinned. Woman would never have sinned. You would never have sinned. The very fact that you sin shows you have no control. It controls you. And the only control there is, is by the Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit of God. So the lost have no control. This is the essence of total depravity. It doesn't mean that you're forced to act the worst that you can be. But you should be surprised that you do not act continually the worst that you can do. 
and you should, and as the loss, you should be questioning that. But they don't. They just say, I'm good. So these are the Christians that the false teachers target. Only by submitting to the Spirit can Christians, as Christ did, resist the flesh, the world, and Satan, remembering they can and do still sin. Now, it's no shock, or should be no surprise to people, that the language that you read the Bible in is not the language it was actually written in. It comes down to us in the New Testament in the Koine Greek. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. So sometimes we have to look at the Greek. We have to look at the grammar to understand what it's telling us. It is impossible to directly translate from one language into another. You cannot directly translate idioms from one language into another. And there are various ways of or approaches to translation. There is the more direct, sometimes mislabeled, the literal translation. But that's impossible. You can't do that. You have to get as close as you think you can to retain the sense of it. Then there is the approach where we're just going to look at it and give the essence of what we believe the language is saying, the original Greek was saying. This is frequently referred to as a looser translation or a conceptual translation. Yet they tend to also run amok and, and probably the living paraphrase Bible, that's how it started, is the worst of the ilk. And the New International Version, the NIV, was probably one of the best of that ilk. But even then, it's at least a lot to be desired. So when you approach your Bible in your language, you have to understand that it's a shadow of what the Greek is saying. It's enough to get you there. It's enough to get you saved. It's enough to get you started on the road to maturity. But that's it. It gets you started. Now, we're not going to be Greek scholars. I certainly am not. But there are people who were and are Greek scholars, and I go to them. So I'm going to be sharing a couple of minor points to help us really understand what Jude is saying here. Having said that, let us go and read our verse. And I read out of the ESV. Uh, and once again, it, it's up there with the NASB and even the MEV, which is really a modernized King James translation. More modernized. But it tends to get away from those aspects of the King James that made it so popular over the centuries and that it doesn't flow. 
most of these modern translations don't flow as well as the old King James did, which makes the King James great for memorization. It has a cadence. It flows usually. Uh, this tends to be lost in the more modern translations. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your holy faith and praying in the Spirit. Now, we're going to stop there because we can't go on to the command that begins in verse 21 until we understand more fully what Jude is telling us in verse 20. And most Americans, which is all I can speak to, are not grammar literate. They just speak. They just throw it out there. Yes, they went to school. Yes, they were exposed to the basics of grammar. At least in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I can't speak to much after that because they can't even use adjectives, actually let alone adverbs and stuff. Everything is awesome. Everything is real. Everything is totally. Everything is amazing. But there's no attempt to get beyond pronouns and these fixed words that have almost no meaning and become so trite that they are actually meaningless. There is no meaning to them. They've been so overused that they become like a movie MacGuffin. They just take on whatever you want them to take on when you want them to take it on to advance whatever it is you're trying to say. Thus, it leads to a lot of incoherence. And then when you talk to people about, I, I don't understand what you're saying, then they get angry because we're supposed to assume that we can, they assume that we can read their mind and know what it is they're saying. But if we could do that, they wouldn't have to talk. And then we probably wouldn't talk to them after reading their minds. That their mind is like my mind. It's a jumbled mess that I try to sort through. And because I have these two natures at war, it's not always a pleasant experience. And I just assume it's the same for everyone else. And so the two tenses that we need to look at are present tense and what's known as the present participle tense in the Greek. Now in the English, we don't have very many participles, usually, but not always. It's words ending in ing, that is our participle. But in the Greek, they use participles to a much greater extent than we do. So we need to understand that, that it's not always translated with an English ING word. And thus, it's not always apparent. And if you just concentrate on the English, you can get yourself into trouble. You can get yourself developing false doctrines, thinking that you're following literally what the Bible is saying, when in fact you're following what your translation is saying. So the present tense is what's known as punctilia. It is an action that has a definite completion point. It's like a period. 
Now, the example I gave is John 1, 3, 8. And let's turn to that and look at that for a moment. There's John 3, 8. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Well, what does this mean, practice of sinning? Well, this is an attempt, and in the English it's awkward. It's an attempt to show a participle present tense. But in other translations, it says, whoever sins is of the devil. Well, that sounds like present tense. <clears throat> now, the difference between the two is that whoever sins is of the devil. It's a completed action. It's a one-off action. Therefore, each sin, in essence, negates salvation. We say, well, no, it can't. But this is where people and denominations have come up with the false doctrine that you can lose your salvation. They look at the English. They look at it in its present tense, because that's what their scripture says, and that's what they come up with. Now, they have to ignore other scripture that is certainly more clear on the matter, like John 10, which says, they are in my Father's hand, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. In other words, you never lose your salvation. It's un. Biblical, and this is the problem with only reading in your own language. You have to get to the original language if you're going to mature. Like I say, you don't have to spend thousands or hundreds of dollars in books, and you don't have to struggle to learn the language, to be an expert in the language, but you do have to start trying to understand what that language is saying. Now, when it gives us the verb sinning here, let me go to the Greek a moment and glance at it. It says that... Uh, Whoever sins, in other words, in the participle, it's an ongoing action with no end, unless an end is stated elsewhere, or in that sentence, but usually it's an ongoing action. So, whoever sins, whoever is continually in the practice of sinning, whoever is continually drawing from sin, in other words, from their sin nature, is of the devil. In other words, this is what lost people do. Christians, though, don't do this because they have a new nature. However, the immature Christian can draw from their fleshly nature 
And we're gonna, we've talked about that in the last lesson. We're going to talk about some more in this lesson. Because people tend to be confused. Your flesh has its own animating principle. And it is constantly at war with your new man, your new nature, to use the uh, uh, imagery or the metaphor of Paul. And so what that verse is saying, 1 John 3.8, is that whoever is in this drawing from their old nature is of the devil. So in 1 John, he's talking to you, he's giving you lists so you can judge whether you're saved or not. And so what is the source of your decision? And this is the reason I'm spending some precious time on this is going to become readily apparent here in a couple of slides is because we're building. Building here is a Greek participle. It's an ongoing action or process. You're always building your faith, whether you're saved or lost. Just like you're always in a state of worship, saved your life. You do not go to church to worship. You are already in a state of worship. You go to church to learn. It's school. You go to church to learn, to be taught by those, hopefully, more practiced, more wise in the scriptures how to understand the scriptures, how to use the scriptures. And then you are sent out from the church as missionaries into that life that you live. You are little missionaries in your workplace, with your friends, with your family. They see or should be seeing Christ in you, and they will hate you for it. Some of them may be saved, will be saved. But most, sadly to say, will not and will not appreciate it. That doesn't mean you need to be shoving Christ down the throat. But it does mean that you're going to think di differently. You're going to talk differently. You're going to act differently. Your wants are going to be different. And, and your goals are going to be different. And if they're not, as John tells us in 1 John, how then do you expect to justify your statement that you are saved. If there is no difference, how can you be saved? And so this is what Jude is challenging us with. This is his conclusion. This is how you protect yourself against false teachers. You are building, always in the process of building your Holy faith. Now, holy is there in the Greek. It's a holy faith. In other words, you're building from your new nature. You are learning and growing. This is your part of the Hagizo process. So this is how you move from being an unstable daisukas, or two-souled or double-minded person, into a more stable Christian. 
mature Christian. You do it under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit controls the flesh. Romans 8. By Romans 7, 7 through Romans 8, 7. This is how it works. That's why that passage is so important. And we do it through discernment. But if you're not learning the scriptures, if you're not listening to the Holy Spirit, if you're constantly resisting or quenching it, to use old King James terms, then you are not maturing. You are remaining unstable. You are full of doubts. And if you are full of doubts, well, let's go to James 1, 5 through 8, because we're going to be making reference to that concept throughout this lesson. If any of you lacks wisdom, now, now we have a working def definition of wisdom. It's knowing put into a godly context or a Christ-centered context. It's facts in a Bible context. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a daisukas person, unstable in all his ways. You're torn between betwixt the new nature and the flesh. You want to do the flesh, but the new nature is pulling you away. And the Spirit is pulling you away. And your guilt is bothering you. But you can't renounce salvation because you didn't agree to salvation. You know, usually it's presented as, oh, that's what salvation is. I agree, Jesus saved me. That's not how it works. Jesus doesn't sit down and negotiate a contract with you, and then you can break it when you don't like it anymore. That's not salvation. Christ is not asking you to enter into a contract. Christ comes and gets you. Christ saves you. And the moment your old nature is crucified, and you're given a new nature, the scales fall from your eyes and you cry out, I have a father. And you're in this glorious state for maybe 30 seconds or 30 days or whatever. And then reality crashes in around you as your flesh rises up in rebellion. Seeking to try to take back control that it lost. And you are tormented and doubting. And this is the work of Satan. And when I say Satan, I mean Satan and his minions, the demons, the fallen angels. You say one, you might as well say both. It's just more convenient to say one. But it's a hierarchy that works together in unison to destroy the body of Christ on earth, to destroy truth on earth, so to keep people from being saved. So this is 
what Jude is saying is the solution to false teachers. Building, building your holy faith, not your fleshly, your holy faith, building it up. That's another aspect of what I've called the Hagiazo process, or what in English is sanctification. It's a big $2 word, and it's, it's an important word, but it just has no meaning to me. Hagiazo is both, this is the verb form of hagias or holy. So it's easier for me to get a handle on it in the Greek. It's really the process to build you up mature you into holy ones or saints, which is just an English form of saying the holy ones. But it builds on the new nature. Now God, part in the, in the Hagiazo process, is not under our control. That's Romans 5, 3 through 5, and James 1, 2 through 4. It is not under our control. God just does this. He's going to mature you. And you're either going to resist it and fight it and keep spinning around in that, that same process until you either give up or he, he says, okay, we're done. And he takes you home. And Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, you guys are not approaching the Lord's Supper in a holy manner and thus... Many of you are sick, and some of you have died because of that. Because God doesn't play. Remember, God in Genesis chapter 6 says, You know, my spirit's not going to strive with your spirit forever. In fact, it's about done right now. And that was Noah's cataclysm. But that whole concept carries throughout the scripture. God is long suffering, but at some point, there is an end. There is an accountability. There is a judgment. Now, for each of us, that occurs at death. Luke 16, when the rich man died, his soul left his body. He opened up his eyes and the not good part of Sheol, what today we would refer to as hell. And done. No coming back from that. That's what Abraham told him. No, well... No, that's not how it works. And the only one who did come back from that was Christ. And they didn't believe him, nor those who saw him. Just like Abraham told the rich man. But this, in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, this is our part of the Hagezo process. Now we've seen sporadically in our study of Jude, that Jude is references back to Peter chapter 2. And I haven't spent a lot of time on that because I didn't want to conflate the two books, the two passages together. And thus they become mishmash and confused. But Jude has already told us just previously that he is building upon what the apostles have laid down. More specifically, what Peter has written. Only he has uh, tailored it 
so that you might be warned that false teachers are in your church, are in your midst. They're around you whispering in your ears. And this Jude is summarizing Peter's process of building your faith, which requires your participation as every decision you make turns you into the person you are. You then give account to Jesus. Now, saved and lost, we both give an account to Jesus. The lost do it at the white throne judgment in Revelations 20, 11 through 15. The saved do it at the Bema or judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. You don't lose your salvation giving an account to Christ. However, there'll be a lot of spanking in that, that, that room. Then he'll wipe away your tears, pat you on the head, and send you out into eternity for the new heavens and new earth. That's just the reality of it. Everybody stands before Christ to give in account. And it's based on every single decision you make. Because before you speak, before you do, you make a decision. Now your decision is basically either or. You either choose the flesh or you choose faith in Christ. Now the dirty secret, the hidden secret behind all this is that you're not really choosing. If you have been powered through previous bad decisions, have empowered the flesh, then your quote-unquote decision will be for the flesh. Now the Holy Spirit is there to guide us, to intercede for us. Even if it means uh, him having to fight against us because we're immature, we're ignorant. It's like a two-year-old. I want what I want when I want. And the parent says, well, it doesn't matter what you want when you want. And you're throwing your fist. It's going to buy you more trouble. You're going to do this, which is what parenting is. Building the child, helping the child to make proper decisions by correcting the child when they make bad decisions. And then as they grow older, especially in the teen years, you pull back so that they reveal through their decisions what kind of person they are and what kind of adult they're building themselves into. You have done this to yourself. Not your mommy, not your daddy, not life circumstances, not your country. You did this to yourself. Because you followed what you followed. Now as lost, we all followed sin. When Christ came and pulled us out of there and saved us, he set us on a different path. And the highest process is to peel away this worldview, this unrealistic, sinful worldview 
a bit at a time, sometimes more than a bit at a time, to reveal to us the error of our understanding so we can make better choices. In other words, we are going to choose the Spirit. We're going to choose for faith in Christ. We're going to go that way because that is the natural inclination of the new nature. Natural inclination of the old nature is sin. Natural inclination of the new nature is to please Christ. So Peter begins with faith, but faith doesn't come from within. That's the lie the false teachers give you, the health, wealth, prosperity crowd. You don't have enough faith. That's why God doesn't do nothing for you, because it's all your fault. That's not what faith is. That's not how it works. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the Spirit within you, and then you reflect it back. You like the moon. Reflecting the rays, the light of the sun. You're reflecting it back. Not only back to Christ, but outward to all around you. Like a pale light in the night. Guiding others to Jesus. That's what missionary is. That's what being a Christian is. It's not about blending in. Moon doesn't blend in. It's right up in the sky, glowing. Can't miss it when it's there. But there are times when it's not there. It's hidden. And that's what you do when you hide by choosing the flesh. You shed no light. No one can see that you are a Christian. They think you're like they are. And if all your friends are lost, if all your buddies are lost, if all your children or your relatives think you haven't changed and just like us, your light is hid. And Paul alludes to this in his building parable in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, when he talks about why there are divisions in the Corinthian church. He says, well, first of all, you're immature. I can't speak to you like mature Christians because you're infants. You're little babies in Christ. I have to feed you with the milk. Of course, the writer in Hebrews chapter 5 picks up on this. And continues this metaphor. You should have solid food, but you're still drinking the milk, although you're still concentrating on the basics, and you're not even understanding those. So how can I build and tell you what you need to know when we're still trying to do like see Dick run, see Jane jump type of doctrinal teaching. You still have the mindset, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, done. That's, that's what a five-year-old does. That's the level you teach a five and eight-year-old on. 
but not adults. So he said, I can't address you. And while you have jealousy and strife, are you not of the flesh? Are you not following the flesh, behaving only in a lost way? In a human way. Paul says, according to the grace of God given me, like a architect, that is literally the Greek word. They say skilled master builder, but it's basically architect. Arch in the Greek is top, the best, the master, the skilled, and tech, of course, is the builder. So you are the architect. He laid the foundation. He gave them the gospel of Christ. There is no other foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. He, and that's out of the Old Testament. He is the rock in the wilderness that the people hated and railed against, yet he still gave them water. If anyone builds on it properly, they'll have great reward from Christ. He gives the metaphor of gold, silver, precious stones. You're not being paid. But he also uses the metaphor of wood, hay, and straw. Because when you stand before Christ at the bibimacy, everything that you did in the spirit will be gold, silver, precious stones, and will stand the test of of his judgment. But everything that you did, you, me, everything I did apart from the Spirit is wood, hay, and stubble. And it burns up. Remember that. Remember when you decide you made that decision. I'm not going to act in accordance with the Bible. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what they will want me to do. That's gone. It has marred your character. It's gone. And you'll have to, and you will tell Christ that. Well, I just won't tell him. Think of being on a big screen and watching your life story and every thought in your little head being displayed on that screen. Every thought. Because eternity. You got time. Because there is no time. And you have to explain that thought. You have to explain that action. You have to explain that decision. Every decision, you'll have to explain that. And you just go, uh, uh, uh. And it burns. Now, you don't lose your salvation. It's not a works-based thing. As Paul says here, though he himself will be saved, but only, <laughs> only, as through fire-ish. And always, you might be shoveling coal to keep the fires of hell burning. You're going to be that close to it. Such that, I think Peter says, the stench of the brimstone will be on you. That's how close you came to being there.
Christ's salvation work is the foundation of faith, which we continually build on, for which we will give an account. That's why James writes, pray for wisdom. You get knowledge of the Bible, put it into an Usabea context. You can't do that if you don't study the Bible. You can't do that if you don't study the Bible using proper her hermeneutics. Now, from here on out, we're going to use this graph I developed. So if you're not following the slides, you're not going to have the graph. And it's going to be hard putting that in, in into your mindset. But this is how we grow in maturity, grow in grace, grow in discernment. The terms are not interchangeable. However, grace is a process by which Christ brings us along. And we practice what we learn out of the scriptures, which is, that is the process of discernment. Practicing to recognize the good and reject the evil. And as we become more proficient in understanding in this, we gain maturity. From Christ the foundation, author of our faith, we are commanded to build our maturation. Now, Peter is very clear in this. He says, add to your faith. He's, he is a build. He just says, we're adding. And you'll always be adding. But what are you adding to? Are you adding to the new nature and growing and maturing it, strengthening it, getting out of the terrible twos, into the confused fives, and into the teen years, and finally, hopefully, you make it into the stable adult years, if you are indeed stable? That's maturation. Or are you just piddling around in the flesh? Because want friends with everybody. You want to be peace with the world. You, you want what you want. And covetousness continues to drive you continually. Then you won't have peace. You won't have stability. And you'll be torn by doubts. See, we continue building with each decision. This is what Jude is telling us. Now, the progression grows us in grace. This usavea plus knowing equals wisdom. And we talked about this in the last lesson, this context. Turn to 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Eternity has a day? Yep. And you can read that in Revelations 21 and 22 because there's never a night. There's no time. There's only day. And so if you look at the, at the graphic here, Christ, the Logos, the, which we learn about through the Scripture is taught by the, the Spirit is the gift of God. It is the foundation, as Paul said. Now, upon that, Peter says, add virtue, add knowledge, self-control, perseverance, usabea, brotherly love, and then love of God. 
And you see they form kind of a pyramid here, and we're going to talk about that. And so our knowing, I changed it from knowledge to knowing, it's just gnosis, which knowing is does not violate the, the definition of gnosis. Our knowing, our collection of facts, our experiences, if we plug those into an usabeya or godly context, we gain godly wisdom. But if we plug them into an asabeya context, which is what the false teachers want to do, then we end up with earthly wisdom, natural wisdom. And then we got to give an account for that. That's not going to be purdy. And if you're only pretending to be saved, and by pretending that means you're not really saved, you only think you're saved, but you're not really saved, and your first inclination you're not saved is when you open up your eyes and funny, I don't see Jesus around. I just see all these flames and I don't like it here now. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 7. But notice what the final product is. And it becomes an interconnected work of God, of the Father. See, in Genesis 1.27, Christ made us in his image. Because remember, Christ made everything. On he in heaven, on earth, everything was made through him. John 1, 1 through 5. Thus, we were made in Christ's image. Then we rejected him inside sin through Adam. And thus, everyone from Adam onward gets past this sin nature. Now, woman received her nature from man. Never says in scripture that God breathed anything into her. God cloned her and modified it from him. Kind of like he gave birth without giving birth in that respect. And thus, he donated his nature to her. Now, it was sinless at the time. Thus, both had to sin. But the sin nature is passed from the male. Remember, Christ received his body from Mary, but he was sinless. He received his nature from his father, who was not Joseph, but the father in heaven. So Christ is the very image of the father, Colossians 1, 15 through 23 the very image of the Father. So we were originally made in the image of Christ and the who's made in the image of the Father, thus we were made in the image of the Father also. And we retain qualities of this. That's why man is only self-aware, physical, living entity in this creation. Now the angels are self-aware, but they're spiritual. They're not of this creation. We were made of from this creation. All were made in his image-ish. And the saved continue now that process of growing in Christ's image. Thus we were, we began in his image, we deformed that through sin, 
We continue that process in our own lives by willingly sinning, Romans 1, 18 through 28. Thus we become guilty in our own right because he forces us to sin, but we want to. Can we want to do good? No, because the flesh and the sin nature. Thus, I'm forced to do evil? No, you're not forced to do evil at all. You choose to do evil. Well, how is that fair? Well, there's evil you choose not to do. Isn't there? You choose not to kill people if you haven't killed people. You choose not to lie if you don't lie. Then you choose to lie. So there is, it's not a mechanistic predetermination. It is predetermined that you will act consistent with your nature. But that nature has various expressions. Not everybody does the same stuff. Thus to save, we continue this process now, once saved, once we have the new nature, of growing in Christ's image. Unless you see this graphic, we have the Father, we have the Christ who is the image of the Father. Then you have uh, the red arrow on one side, is believer going from Christ and upward, because we should be growing in grace through the practice of discernment and maturation. Whereas this, on the other side, you see the arrow on both ends because the Spirit, Romans 8, takes our prayers upward, even when we don't know what we should pray for, and brings God's will back down to us and implements it in our lives, even when we don't want it. And thus, we grow. Faith to virtue. What's virtue? Struggled with this for years. How do you define virtue? Now you can look it up in any dictionary. I wouldn't use any of the modern ones and the online ones. You'll have trouble. It carries a moralistic connotation. She preserved her virtue. He was virtuous in that he showed courage. Uh, but it's not consistent with its usage in the Greek in this passage. It harkens back to a workspace mayot. That's Egyptian. It means to weigh in the balance. And that's what workspace does. If my good outweighs my bad, then God has to accept me in heaven. Peter at the gateway has got to pass me through because I have the paper. See, my heart was right because it outweighed the evil I had done. The balance, the good evil balance, the yin yang, whatever Gnostic approach you want, it's always the same. It's always incoherent. It's a fallacy. You don't get into heaven with evil, any evil. You only get into heaven by being holy. And since we have sin, we are never holy. We can only be covered in Christ's holiness. And we wear it like a garment. Now for Plato, his, he always envisioned these, these uh, perfect elements for knives or swords, or even people 
They were non-empirical. You can't say heaven, but they were in some perfect area that was non-empirical and not approachable and, and basically not knowable. This is where Plato's philosophy falls on its face. If it's not really knowable, how do we know it? Well, we make it up. Okay. And thus, it formed the pattern for the earthly elements, even for people. So this required the dictatot, the philosopher king, to force you to live properly and to punish you when you did not. Now, it's from Plato and Neoplatonism that Rousseau eventually in the 18th century developed his philosophy that laid the foundation for the French Revolution and thus for socialism, as we know it today, modern socialism. But it's Antichrist because basically he says, we're all trying to achieve this and we just need the philosopher king to force us to do this. Aristotle rejected that and said, no, it's defined. Virtue is defined as a person's pattern of development based on knowledge and decisions to achieve the desired moral good. Of course, he, he never defines what that moral good is or the source of that moral good because he can't. He says, we just all agree that not k- killing people usually is a moral good. That being trustworthy and not lying is a moral good. We'll just all agree to that. No. Well, if you can agree to that, then you can agree that if we all decide to kill off a certain group of people, that's good too, because we all agreed. And that's where the fallacy of this falls down. This is Antichrist reasoning. This is incoherent. This is nihilistic. But this is how people agree to decide what is good and evil today. We just agree amongst ourselves. That fallacy holds no water. When in fact, you don't agree to anything, it is instilled in you as a product of being in the image of God. In the ten words, see God. Well, you know God exists when you look up in the night sky. You know it's always wrong to kill. It's always wrong to, to, mur- uh, not to, to lie, to covet, and so on and so forth. It's in the ten words. And when you violate that, you feel guilt. That's your warning sign that You've done wrong. But the new nature does not build on the flesh psychos. On the flesh's nature. It cannot. The old man is crucified with Christ. You begin anew with the new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 All things have passed away. All things have become new. You are a new creation. You don't build on the old. The new nature is not a cloak worn over the old man. They would be at war. And we know they'd be at war because the flesh is at war with your new nature. And it's controlled only by the Spirit. And Christ is our example of this. Anything that Christ did, And his ministry was done through the Spirit because he didn't begin his ministry until he received the Spirit at his baptism. 
The new nature then builds on Christ the foundation, his death, burial, and resurrection. One must learn new thought behavior patterns, which are foreign to our flesh. Hence, the Hagezo process teaches us through experience. When we make poor decisions, or when life deals you a sour hand, you react different. And you learn humility. You learn to become that poor in spirit. The Beatitudes is basically what God is molding you into through the Hagezo process. Every choice. Development of you 101. That's the foundation of Christ. That is character. Knowing wisdom. Self-control. Perseverance. This is development 101. Gives Christ the Logos, which, yes, it's word, but it means more than that. It means the very essence and image of the Father uses the word Bible. Hebrews uh, 1-2. Energized by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2-14, giving us the template for growth. Each choice builds from our current character, strengthening either the new man or the old man. So I want to emphasize that when virtue, what I envision this as being is character. Because if we go back here, Aristotle defined it as pattern of development based on knowledge and decisions to achieve the desired well, to him, the desired moral good, but what it does achieve is your character. It's whom and what you are. So we'll use that word in our translation from virtue to character. You want to know how to build good character? That's how you build good character. We participate by our knowing the Bible. Oops. You don't study the Bible? You sit down in the church? You hear the message? You get up and leave? It's like looking into a mirror and then you walk away from it and you forget what you look like. Uh, who said that again? James! He says, that's why you're unstable. Read. Desire. You're driven toward it with a new nature. If you have no desire, how do you know you have the new nature? If you're comfortable never exhibiting Christ, but always being the new moon, that's not shedding the light of Christ, how do you know you are saved? Well, I sit in the church every week, or I hear the lesson every week, or I've done bad stuff, as you define bad stuff. Of course, you're always defining so you're the hero of your own story. That's what the worldview is for. So, yeah, by your own criteria, you should all be getting into heaven. But it's not, you're not being measured by your criteria. You're being measured by whether you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So this is our knowing coupled with experience to gain wisdom. In fact, we take those facts, we take that experiential knowledge 
and put in a and it's put into an usabe or godly context. This is wisdom. And it develops the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. You can't practice self-control. Well, I haven't killed anybody, yeah. That's not self-control. Self-control is don't sin. Don't think bad. Always, always, always do good. As the Bible defines good, not as you define good. And nobody can. And Christ did, in the flesh, under the power of the Spirit. Self-control to resist sin. And upon this is, you, is built perseverance or endurance. It's the Greek word hypomene. It's a military term. It means to remain behind until relieved. It means to stand there no matter how close the enemy gets. No matter how you are attacked, you stand there. You have the tools, the word of God, salvation, truth, righteousness, and you stand there shod with the shoes of the gospel because you're carrying them out to others. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring the gospel, Paul wrote in Romans 10. We patiently, now patient is not hypomene. It is macrothumia. Lust is Epithumia, like a volcano blowing up out of control. But macro is large, it's wide, it's placid like a, like a lake in the morning. That is patience. We wait Christ's return. Doubt is incongruent with wisdom, godly wisdom. Totally incongruent with godly wisdom. And this is where the false teachers attack. Now, let's go develop a view 201. You're working through 101, you're understanding that. What are the expressions of this? Well, godliness, usabea, is not luck, but per this full maturing from sin's worldview to see God's view of the world. It changes you. As you stand there, as you study the scripture, as you practice discernment, rejecting the evil, well, that, that was evil caught up. Uh, it snuck up on me and I fell for it. It's temptation. We talked about that again. Oh, James again. And we get burned and we say, what? Okay, I understand this better now. Reject that fruit and choose the good. And as we do this, as we grow in this, we see the world through God's eyes. If you're not seeing the world through God's eyes, then you're seeing the world through your sinful worldview, which was designed to make you the hero of your own story. 
Jude specifically uses filio and agape, referring to different foci. Now, in the last lesson and in other lessons, I've said filio and agape are usually used interchangeably. And that's absolutely true. But here, they're not. Here, they're used as people expect them to, to be used. Here, filio is not to be con confused with agape. Filio is brotherly love. In other words, love those in Christ. As Christ loved you, even, Romans 5, you were lost and unlovely. Well, we don't know who's lost, but we know those who proclaim to be Christians. We give them the be be benefit of being in Christ. And we show them Christ's love. We show them patience. We show them guidance when they're spousing stuff that's not very maturing. And if they're interested in being mature, they will respond in humbleness and listen. And then go search the scriptures like the Brians did. So, if you do not love those whom you do see, as John talks about in 1 John, you can't love those, you can't love God whom you don't see. You can't love Christ whom you don't see. You can't love Spirit whom you do not see. If you do not love those whom you do see. So agape is the love for God and Christ whom you cannot see. And you prove this by keeping his commands, keeping his words. If you do not do this, you are not exhibiting the love of Christ. You're doing some mishy, washy, washy, surfy thing out of the world, which only benefits you. Thus, if you do not have brotherly love, you do not have agape. You do not love God. First John 2, 9 through 11. First John 4, 20 through 21. So growing in grace is resisting the false teachers. Maturing Christians grow in maturing grace via discernment, resisting false teachers by seeing their incoherent deceptions. Of course, you're assisted by the Word, Christ, the Bible, and the Spirit. Christ gave the church, including local churches, elders, for you to recognize and reject false teachers. It continues Proverbs wisdom, please. Proverbs 1, 23, 2, 1 through 15, 3, 5 through 8, and verses 11 through 12. And again, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Let's go to Ephesians 4. And I would invite you to look up these verses to check me out. To make sure that I'm not mishandling the scriptures. That I haven't accidentally used verses that I shouldn't. Search out the scriptures. Be a Berean. And he gave the apostles. And he gave to the churches from the previous verses. The apostles. The prophets. The evangelists. The pastor dash teachers. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building there's that participle again, building up 
the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so we may no longer be hmm, children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Which is exactly what false teachers do. They lie. They're deceitful. They're scheming. They want to gain little footholds in churches. But in churches with biblically-based elders, with congregations who listen and grow with Christ, they can't gain any foothold. They're thrown out. They're rejected. They're walled out. And they have to go to other churches, other denominations. Because false teachers target churches chasing, changing doctrines and philosophies. You can have an entire denomination of immature Believers, purposely being left immature, being infiltrated by the lost. And the false teacher's major point of attack is casting doubt on Christ's veracity. You have to. He's the foundation. You have to destroy the foundation. In Second Peter 3, 3 through 4, where's the promise? He gave this promise he was coming. He ain't come. You sure? Did God really say that? That sounds like Satan in Genesis 3 5. Did God really say that? Christ never gave a time frame on his return. He said, wait, watch, and wait. Nobody knows the hour except the Father, not even me. False teachers cast doubt in the minds of the immature, framing all God's promises as empty, vain, and his Bible is myth. But it's they who teach the myth. They claim private interpretations, challenging the Bible's claims that there are no private or secret interpretations, as all are taught by God's Spirit. One Spirit, one Lord, one Christ. Back to Ephesians 4.4. 4. And read down to 4.8. They allegorize the Bible, encouraging the immature to follow their fleshly desires and goals of health, happiness, wealth. But they all end in slavery. And this is what Peter is telling us here in 2 Peter 2, 18 through 24. He's telling us that the whole point of this Hagezo process is to not be captured by these people. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they, false teachers, enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promised freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, and they want you to be to go back to being enslaved, for whatever overcomes a person to that, he is a slave. For if, after they, meaning Christians, have escaped the defilements of the world to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
They are again entangled in them and overcome, but not lose your salvation. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it had been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow, after being moist, returns to wallow in the mud. Remember, you have to give an account for all this. It's not that, oh, I missed the boat. I wish I had been better. No, it's like you're going to stand before Christ and give an account on everything. The goal of God's Hagezo process is not gratification, but humility. Learning one will never control one's flesh. It requires the spirit based on Christ's foundation. So in closing, Jude continues, praying always. Now praying in this verse is also a participle. It's ongoing. Paul says this, pray consistently, pray continually. So Paul is saying the same thing, or pray without ceasing in the King James. But here it's deponent. Now deponent is often passive voice, but not strictly passive voice. This is something that you're doing for you. You're not praying because God needs you to talk to him. Trust me, he can get your attention anytime he needs to. You're praying to him for you. Because as you pray, as you talk to him, because praying is just communicating with the Father through Christ via the Spirit, you are being taught. Scriptures are coming to mind. You are growing. So if you don't pray, you don't grow. If you're not meditating on the Scripture and talking to Christ about it, you're not growing. And the Spirit intercedes. Intercession is vital due to our absolute lack of spiritual senses. We cannot see in the spiritual realm, despite what idiots have written over the millennia. You just flat cannot. In this physical body, you have no spiritual awareness. It is the Holy Spirit who guides us through this minefield. False teachers substitute many myths for Christ's gospel for you to feel better in ignorance. They want you to stay in ignorance. Modern entertainment, modern music, modern literature is designed to keep you in ignorance. To keep you chasing your passions, living in your feelings, living in your emotions. Star Wars, Luke, let go. Feel the force. Turn your mind off. Don't talk to God. They encourage covetousness, which is the foundation of all sin. It is the idolatry. Colossians 3.5. Reject them. 
to grow in Christ. Reject them. And so this is what Jude is talking about. Where he says, building yourself up in your holy faith and praying in the Spirit. I would invite you to grasp a desire to be hungry for maturity. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That is our goal. Thank you.